Welcome to Workforce RX with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Fontone Quinlivan, CEO of Futuro Health. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Imelda Dacones to Workforce RX, who, amongst her many meaningful roles that she plays, was a board member of Futuro Health until recently. She is now president of Washington Optum Care in Seattle, with oversight of several large clinics serving 700,000 people. She assumed that role last year after 22 years as a physician and senior leader at Northwest Permanente in Portland, Oregon, including six years as its president. Dr. Dakonis is a nationally recognized leader in healthcare delivery innovation, addressing social determinants of health and the health impacts of climate change, amongst many other issues. What I love the most about Dr. Dakonis, or maybe Imelda, I can say, on my board, were her insights into the future of care and how skill sets would shift. Thanks to her, Futura Health was ahead of the curve in commissioning a series of education programs to bring the next generation of workers into healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us today, Imelda. It's so good to see you again. Great to see you, Vaughn, and thank you for this opportunity to talk with you. And congratulations again on your amazing podcast and fabulous Workforce RX book. So Thank you very much for all, all that you're teaching our communities and our business leaders about this important issue and topic about workforce planning and everything around that. Well, I'm able to do the good works. Thanks to uh, the support of leaders like you, Imelda. I, I would love to start by first having you share your personal story. I mean, what called you into medicine and to become a doctor? You know, it's a very vivid memory of mine interesting how the brain works. I remember when I was six years old telling my mother I wanted to be a doctor. Now, at six years old, you might ask, where did that come from? And, you know, to this day, I I couldn't tell you other than just watching her and my dad really in the service of people and communities. My dad was a a community activist as well as a politician. So day and night, people came to our home asking for help, advice, and counsel. And my mom ran our family business in retail. And so she too was oftentimes asked to consult on not just business and financial matters in the communities, but just in, in general for help. So growing up and watching the two of them. And then I also had two of my older siblings as nurses. So I, I think if I had to postulate that just growing up in that environment and then after being six years old and declaring that um, over time as I really liked science, you know, what better application of science to my mind than in care of people. So I think that's how it came about if I had to put it all together for you. Well, I can see that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. You've always um, articulated the value of being in service to the community. All your years in medicine and being a physician, it must be very concerning to you to see what is happening in the great resignation. And what does this look like in healthcare, especially for you who has such responsibility for several clinics, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as I 
took on greater responsibilities as a physician leader, the first thing I came across upon was learning more about the physician shortage. Um, so I came to my CEO and president role in Northwest Permanente in 2015. And, you know, one of the things that I tackled right away was how do we think about workforce planning? And in my research, that's when I came across some of the numbers, statistics, and forecasts around physician shortage that was upon us becoming more acute by 2025 when it came to primary care physicians, and then by 2030, certainly across all specialties. So, so that was already top of mind when I thought about, you know, strategy and how do we begin to create a roadmap to mitigate that. And then, God, you know, the pandemic, right? Who had that in the <laughs> forecasting or uh, so putting all of that together, already had that in mind, uh, thinking about that. And then now this pandemic with the great resignation and the attrition in healthcare and for those of you in, in the industry listening would probably add more to the, you know, every role. Uh, so if you look at the clinic, medical assistants, our registration staff, our nurses, uh, people who are responsible for infection control and the cleaning of the facility. So every hand that touches care, whether direct patient care, all the way up to the physicians, clinicians, or indirectly supporting care, we have seen attrition as, number one, if we even just look at it from a gender perspective, women cutting back hours women leaving the field altogether through a combination of things, uh, more caregiving, more household work, taking on more responsibility for the education of their children. And so those demands on people. And then just, again, a statistic I saw recently, 8,000 nurses left the hospital across the country in December. And, you know, leading up to that, uh, many more nurses have left the field. Uh, where did they go? And some of them just retired earlier or just retired because it was time. Some have just gone to other industries, leaving direct patient care, or if they stayed in, in healthcare, doing more indirect clinical care. All throughout every role in healthcare, I would say the great attrition, the great resignation uh, applies across. Then what is a provider to do given that context? And I understand that even from a retention perspective, some employees are demanding telework arrangement, permanent telework arrangement. So that's another added stress on the staffing situation. Right. Well, at the clinician level, I would say, you know, it goes back to the three R's and, you know, this was something that I talked about even way before the pandemic is a framework for transforming and innovating care and really reinventing care delivery. You know, we talk a lot about transformation, 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 and innovation, but what is the framework? It's one thing to talk about it, but how do we begin to, you know, get to the specifics of it? And so to the core or frontline clinician, I talk about the three R's. It's reimagine, reimagining the care team, reimagining the role of everyone in that care team, re-engineering the visit, re-engineering the work, 
and we reimagine and re-engineer in order that we reinvigorate ourselves, reinvigorate the practice of medicine, and really reinvigorate care delivery for, for all the aims, the quadruple aim that's talked about. And so if you take for, you know, to your point about what do you do, if, if I'm a clinician, when I look at the care team with me in primary care or specialty care or surgical care, we have medical assistants, right? We have registration staff. We have nurses who are doing the outreach or maybe doing the care management. How do we begin to think about redeploying them differently? You know, the medical assistants of yesteryears, you know, how do we think about medical assistants more as a population health navigator? You know, as we automate vital signs checking, as we have remote patient monitoring, we're People can do their vital signs before they even come to the clinic or as they do it at home or at the clinic if there is a station where they can do self-service on getting their vital signs. A lot of things that our medical assistants do now, we can digitize, automate. So when you do that, what then is left that our medical assistants and only really a human being can do? You know, they can talk with the patients about closing care gaps but even that you can automate. So really beginning to think about how we redeploy our roles, our, our teammates, our care team members differently to, to do more of the higher touch. And so automation is huge on how we can reimagine the role. Digital front door is key to doing a lot of re-engineering the work um, as we think about how do we use all the tools that's already around us? And, and certainly the pandemic has accelerated adoption and accelerated scaling of these capabilities. And, and then lastly, reinvigorating, because, you know, let's face it, all of us, our mental health has suffered, all of us, from this pandemic. And so it's beyond working harder. How do we work differently so that we can reinvigorate ourselves? So we're not running on that treadmill, seeing one patient after another, particularly as we just talked about the great attrition, there's fewer. There's fewer of, of all these roles, of all these people. So how do we reinvent care altogether for the consumers and patients that we serve, but also for ourselves? Because there just are not going to be enough of nurses, doctors, medical assistants, and so on coming into the future. Well, Imelda, in terms of the digital front door, you know, one of the advice that you had provided me earlier on as the pandemic took its toll was that telehealth and telemedicine would be here to stay. It would not be one of the things, the set of practices that would revert to pre-pandemic state. So does that create an opportunity? What do you see for care moving to the home, for example? It's the final frontier, <laughs> right? Um you know, when you think back, it's medicine has come full circle in the past, not, not too distant past, actually, where we had fewer capabilities and fewer medicines and care to offer. You know, we often took the care to the patient at home. And then with the advent of more stuff, more technology advancements in, in diagnostics and therapeutics, we've stood up hospitals. Uh, and now it's come full circle as we are now figuring out and have figured out the care model of, you know, how do we take care of a patient with severe pneumonia at home as their 
hospital space uh, is their home and figured out the logistics, you know, bringing the nurse to the bedside to the home, uh, bringing the physical therapist or the phlebotomist and, and all those things to the patient's home. And the technology in terms of 24-7 connectivity with the care team, their doctor, quote unquote, at the bedside remotely and the nurse remotely and then having their remote patient monitoring where you brought the equipment to the bedside, the patient's blood pressures and temperatures, their weight, their oxygen levels, all of those things can be ascertained at the patient's home and have this team of doctor and nurses monitoring that 24-7, much like you'd be on a medical surgical unit in a hospital. So that's all out there. That's, that's happening. And we're going to make that even better and more and scale it. Do you think that's in the 10-year horizon where it goes more mainstream? Or do you think that the pandemic has pulled that timeline tighter? Yeah, so when I was in Oregon, one of the things that we were working with a partner is being able to take care of patients in their home for their hospitalization instead of a hospital. And um, by all accounts, as of September last year, that program had admitted over a thousand patients. So imagine over a thousand patients hospitalized, but hospitalized at home. So that's something I'm very proud of being a part of in standing up in Oregon. Uh, but that, you know, exists across the country more and more. And certainly with the pandemic and the demand for hospital beds, you know, figuring out how do we add to the capacity, the hospital bed capacity, without building more brick and mortar. And frankly, as people were afraid to go into the hospital and catch COVID, uh, you know, there are just a, a lot of things in terms of safety of being home, you know, reduction in hospital-acquired infections, hospital-acquired blood clots or complications. People are just more mobile in their home compared to a hospital. And, you know, from a mental state, mental health perspective, uh, who wouldn't want to be in more familiar surroundings and comfortable surroundings? So there's a lot that we are learning about the positives of having your hospital stay at home. And, you know, when you were addressing the physician shortage and physician retention situation at Northwest Permanente, you focus very much on joy for physicians. And I wonder, as care moves to the home and maybe doctors are more centralized, how do you think they would receive the transition? You know, I think when I think about how do we rekindle joy in medicine, you know, while we also address all these stressors that contribute to burnout. One of the things that having capabilities like a digital front door or telehealth, it provides flexibility as well as variety in practice. And one of the key focus areas that we work on and, and continue to work on is in primary care. So it might be that for a half day, you're seeing patients face-to-face in person at the clinic. And for the other half day, it might be all video visits. Or you might be the 
primary care doctor on call for the service area. And so you would help support advice nurses who might need a doctor's help to address the patient's concern when they're calling in. And so really thinking about how do we reinvigorate that third R, right? Uh, so add variety to the practice. And, and certainly this is an opt-in model for physicians who want to do this work, who, who want the flexibility in hours. Um, and once you go into things like 24-7 operations of access to a primary care or an urgent care physician, again, these are other things where somebody might want to work at night and be free in the daytime because of young children. And so you begin to create an ecosystem of care that is even more consumer-centric in terms of availability, in terms of providing convenience, access, and options, and on the clinician side, providing the flexibility in shifts or hours, as well as in diversity of things to do and how you begin to really either take care of your panel or take care of a population. Well, as a consumer of healthcare, I certainly like the options that you're laying out in that future. Um, Imelda, I wonder, you know, every crisis creates opportunity. And so I wonder what your prescription is for the healthcare workforce as we recover from the pandemic. Yeah, I'm going to be a broken record on this, Vaughn, about the three R's, because again, even before the pandemic, challenging ourselves to work differently, challenging ourselves to work smarter in the sense of consumerism has forever changed the expectations, right? I think for a time, we physicians, clinicians, and in healthcare thought ourselves different from a consumer's expectations of technology, retail, and so on. But it's caught up, you know, the give it to me when I want it, how I want it, and also in a culturally competent, sensitive matter as we think more about equity, inclusion, and diversity, and weave all of that into care delivery. And so my prescription is the same of we have to reimagine all these roles that we've been comfortable with and blow up that mental model and say, how do we, now that we have other tools at our disposal, how do we reimagine a medical assistant? And, you know, that outreach, what you and I have discussed previously about community health workers, how do we have extenders of the care team from the clinic out in the communities who look like our patients and know the language and know the community to make them feel comfortable with ongoing care. Um, and lastly, I guess I would say that as a society, I think lessening the emphasis on clinical care for outcomes of wellness and health and focusing more on what are all those things that really contribute to wellness. It is the family, however you define that. How do we support families? How do we support educational attainment. We know that the health outcomes for a pregnant teen are different from a pregnant woman with college education and how even that unborn child is going to do. And so how do we help that 
financial health, housing plays a large part. I mean, uh, I knew this 15-year-old who was in and out of the ER 38 times over 18 months. But when we really dug into what was driving the health needs, it was that her mom worked two jobs and was not home often. And, you know, their home had holes in the floors and mold and very unstable uh, home situation and wasn't in doing well in school for all of these other things I'm talking about in the instability of the home situation, housing, and never mind financial. And when we had a community health worker work with her and her mom and her brother and, and get them affordable housing and connect them to resources in the community, the ED visit stopped. And um, glad to know that she went on to college. She graduated from high school. And uh, last I heard, she was thinking of a career in healthcare. So no amount of insulin, you know, this young girl was a diabetic too, of all things. No amount of insulin was going to fix her 38 visits to the EDs and all that she was dealing with at home. It was really filling the gaps and addressing the gaps in the social health, financial health, uh, and well-being of her and her family that was ultimately changes the trajectory of the outcome. And everybody who is in healthcare knows what I'm talking about. So I guess that would be my prescription is just reimagine, re-engineer so that we can reinvigorate ourselves, but at the same time, really look hard at what we're doing or not doing as a society to create these opportunities for success in families, in individuals. I love the story that you shared because it makes it vivid in terms of understanding you know, when a person comes in and needs care, not all of what they need is medical. There's a whole bunch of other services that they may need. Does that mean that community health workers become a part of the hospital system? Or is it more about building the capacity of the community to have these types of occupations that then are good handoffs for the hospital systems? Yeah, I would say it's a both and because people spend... 99.9% of their time in the community, not in the buildings of clinics or hospitals, right? So as much as we can partner with community-based organizations that support people, you know, whether it's a financial need or housing need, transportation need, legal health, I mean, there's so many, there's a whole ecosystem of social needs community-based organizations that in partnership with the ecosystem of healthcare, I, I think it it has to be that. And to create that complete, you know, total care, mental, physical, social, financial, I think it's that partnership. It's hospital, it's ambulatory, it's the communities, and it's a community-based organization working together. And then, you know, having the right policies and infrastructure in schools. Obviously, now we're getting into, you know, truly a systemic systems-based point of view of how do we knit all of these institutions together to help its citizenry be better, do better, uh, feel better. Well, that's actually a really good segue to my next question. Um, as you know, I, I recently published a book, Workforce Rx, 
same title, uh, Agile and Inclusive yep. Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers. And it advocates for something that we lived at Futura Health and that you're alluding to, which is that organizations don't have to tackle things alone, especially on the workforce issues and especially of this mm-hmm. magnitude. And so when you're thinking about uh, workforce development these days, especially in your, your current duties, how does this concept of partnership of collaboration, of consortia, of sort of braiding efforts, do these concepts resonate with the work that you're doing today? Absolutely. I mean, so some of the things that we're doing are partnering with community colleges, for example, to fortify, if not develop, uh, MA, medical assistance curriculum and standing this up and partnering and providing our clinics and facilities to be places where the students can learn, right? And a bigger scale, eventually getting the health systems and community here in Washington to partner in how do we figure this out together as opposed to trying to do it alone. So uh, that's definitely on the to-do list for me here in, in Washington. And I'm really enjoying meeting system leaders here in Washington who are like-minded. And, and frankly, we're all facing these challenges. And so that's on the horizon. I I did also, as you know, you know, reach out to you and think about bringing you over at some point to talk about with health system uh, leaders uh, about what you've done in Futuro in California and what could that look like in Washington. Absolutely. Please let us know how Futuro Health can help. I mean, we've been designing solutions that really pay attention to scale equity, and agility, and would love to uh, share those uh, playbooks. So as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you are known as a thought leader on so many issues, including value-based care, social determinants of health, and the health implications of climate change. What's your advice to our listeners who are largely workforce professionals in anticipating the trends and skill changes in the future of care? (laughs) On which of those things? Um, So maybe just thinking about climate change for a minute. So just because it's March now and next month, April is Earth Day, you know, one of the things about how we might reimagine and re-engineer is as an industry, healthcare, you know, we are a big producer of greenhouse gas and have likened us to if healthcare as an industry was a country, we would be ahead of Great Britain and greenhouse gas emissions. And so thinking about sourcing for hospital systems and clinics and organizations, with whom are you partnering from a supply chain perspective? Are you picking vendors that are more climate friendly? In your own facilities, um, what are those things that create a lot of waste and how might we partner with some of our vendors, for example, to to reduce that packaging uh, or waste footprint, uh, for example, for physicians and clinicians, you know, who use a lot of these things, those are the kind of things too that we can think about. And where there are differences in products, and one thing I'm familiar with is anesthesia gases you know, desflurane versus sevoflurane, you know, one stays in the atmosphere for decades and decades 
uh, and another gets broken down in less than several years. And so beginning to think about those things and the, the impact we're making and, and, you know, even connecting that to telehealth, um, one of the things that uh, published with Dr. Colin Cave around telehealth and some guesstimates and estimates around with telehealth where people are not driving to doctor's offices, we're not driving to pharmacies, and how do we begin to create an ecosystem of care with a footprint of us patients, us as consumers of care, what we can do? And so that paper talks about in having more video visits, in having more e-visits, saving people time driving around, all of those contribute to, or at least mitigate, greenhouse gas emissions, for example. So of all those things that you mentioned of what I think about, I think climate change is one of those things, too, that we as an industry, uh, and, and certainly every care team member and clinician can think about their own footprint. And, and there's a whole white paper on this, American College of Physicians and others have published about what we as clinicians can do in our own practice uh, at the patient's bedside to begin to impact and mitigate what we've done with the climate. Well, this is a whole set of skills that I had not even considered were related to healthcare. So thank you for pointing those out. Now, you're known as a proponent of the quadruple aim, and I was wondering if you could share with our audience what that meant. Uh, can you describe what this means and how it guides your decision as a leader? Yeah, it's really the complexity of how we balance all the priorities. So, so the aims are, you know, we absolutely want quality of care. We absolutely strive for great care experience, affordability of care, and caregiver experience. In the past, it was the triple aim, and it evolved to quadruple aim, adding on there the caregiver experience, whether it's physicians, nurses, that you know, everybody. And, and so that's really the quadruple aim. And so as we think about prioritization, as we think about the finite resources that we have, and we work to balance and serve all of those aims in what we do and how we do. So those are the aims. Oh, that's a helpful framework. And I should have asked you this before um, when we were talking about physicians. I mean, you were on the board of the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine at one point. Uh, how does medical education need to evolve to meet the many challenges confronting healthcare and the future of care? I think that's another podcast or 10. <laughs> you know, when I look back at my own medical education, I, I guess what I would say that was missing and glad that, you know, KP School of Medicine and other uh, medical schools now have come to embrace, to promote is around how do we really think about equity, inclusion, and diversity? in how we choose our medical students, in how we train our medical students, in how we, as a trainee, as a medical student, um, how do we teach that in taking care of the patient, participating in the community, and leaning in in the communities that we serve. And so having 
medical students going out into the communities and doing parts of their clerkship and work in the community. So, so that was not there for me long, long time ago when I was in medical school. So I'm glad that that's really now front and center for many medical schools in the training. And this notion of social determinants of health, you know, that wasn't even a term when I was going to medical school. So really having clinicians understand how all of those drive health outcomes, less so than what we do as doctors with patients in clinics or hospitals, and then taking it up further from social determinants of health, how systemic institutional racism is at the root of that. Um, and how do you unpack that? And, and, you know, I know it's hard conversations to have, but as physicians, we're trained to have hard conversations. And so who better to have these conversations? It sounds like the skills have shifted or the content have shifted a bit. It's not just the traditional, what you would expect in terms of the clinical skills and the ability to deal with patients. You have this DEI overlay. And then I, I've also understand that being technology comfortable is also a, a set of skills that will be expected of physicians as well. Yeah. You know, I'm less worried about that actually, because, you know, I can even see it on my kids. Um, I think some of the hesitation on adopting telehealth and digital health all along is because, you know, for us old school people, uh, we didn't grow up with that. But, you know, when you look at the Gen Zs and the generations after, they think texting is intimate and relational. You know, they, they think FaceTiming is intimate, whereas, you know, some other physicians, clinicians might say, I need to touch my patient to have a relationship and the generations now here and more to come, I believe are going to um, blow that out of the water and say a relationship is based on X, Y, Z. And, and so I'm hopeful that the future generations and the younger generations now get it about connecting people and how we connect with people. It's going to be defined and redefined by the technology and the environment they've grown up in. Well, Imelda, let me um, offer you the opportunity to give us any closing advice. The month of March is Women's History Month, by the way. And I wonder if you have any uh, closing comments. Yeah, so to all your listeners and to you, Vaughn, happy National Women's History Month. And uh, what a remarkable 31 days we have that hopefully not just half of the population, but all the population celebrate, acknowledge all the women and girls in their lives, and also take an opportunity to learn more about women's history and, and really celebrate accomplishments and contributions and industries and to our country and many amazing things. And, and also, you know, as I, I think about what the pandemic has done to women in the workforce, um, what, you know, remains tremendous work to be done still. So I think it's a both hands. Uh, let's celebrate, acknowledge, commemorate, all of those things that we've advanced, but also acknowledge that the road ahead is still quite long and arduous and there's more work to do. 
and and beyond acknowledging specific women, uh, I want to acknowledge every single woman that in their own mutable ways at home, at work, in their community, are as a collective, we are moving women forward every day, every time in lives that we're living. Well, I want to celebrate you for inspiring so many people in the healthcare and medical field and inspiring me uh, to do my work. Thank you very much, Dr. Dakonas and Melda today for being with us. It's such a delight to uh, spend time with you. I am Vontone Quinlevin with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.